0: You are listening to audio from Cibolo Creek Community Church. To learn more, visit cibolocreek.com. So we started this discussion last week entitled "Devil's Advocate," and most of us we understand the way that that term is typically used in a meeting. Somebody will take the contrarian or the critical view of what's currently being discussed or planned as a way to challenge thinking, make sure we haven't missed any details, to make sure that we really understand what it is that we're about to do. But I'm interested in looking at the term itself, the devil's advocate. And so if we take the opportunity and we pull it apart, what we have is me, not doing the buttons correctly, devil's advocate. So the devil's advocate, and we know that the word advocate means representative, defender, ambassador, or spokesperson, so the concept that I'm interested in is that the devil, the devil has a representative. He has a spokesperson who's advancing his agenda. The devil has an ambassador and one who comes to his defense. And so what I'm working from by way of a premise is that the devil, God's celestial enemy, and the perpetrator of all things evil, has an extremely powerful and persuasive representative, spokesperson, defender in our world. And as we introduced to you last Sunday, the name of that powerful and persuasive advocate on the devil's behalf is culture. I'm trying to raise our awareness of what's going on in culture. And so here's what I tell you, that the most powerful movers and shakers of culture actively advocate, represent, spokesperson, they actively advocate for many of the values, the beliefs, the behaviors that the devil seeks to promote as the author of evil. Or another way that we'd say that is that contemporary culture is often the devil's spokesperson for all things contrary to how God wants human beings to live. So what I want us to understand is that God has a certain way that he would invite us to live our lives. And the devil has a very different way that he would have us live our lives. And culture is often the spokesperson for the way of life, the values and the beliefs that the devil would have for us as human beings. There's nothing that culture wants more than to get its hooks in you in order to shape the way that you think and choose for the rest of your life. We are inundated by culture, we are immersed in culture, and we are influenced by culture every single day that we get out of bed. And one of the reasons why this is particularly urgent in my mind is that culture wants nothing more than to get its hooks in us, and it begins with their target group, and that's teens and 20-somethings, your children. So again, as parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, as mentors, teachers, coaches, we have to be aware of what's going on in culture. Now... I know that some of you are thinking, um, Paul. I mean, you generally strike me as, I don't know, fairly intelligent. Like, do you do you really believe in the devil? I mean, seriously, the devil, that little guy that sits on your shoulders and tells you what you, you really believe that. Well, I do. And let me, let me explain to you why. I believe in God. The faith of my life is deeply founded on this idea that God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, exists. And I believe what God has revealed in the pages of the scripture to be true about himself I believe in his character and his nature and, and my understanding through the scriptures of how God thinks and behaves. I believe that. I believe, I've banked my life on what God has revealed to be true about Jesus. Who he is and how he is. What he's capable of. I I sincerely and deeply believe in what God has revealed to me about Jesus on behalf of his work on the cross in relationship to sin, forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. I believe those things. I'm banking my life on those to be true. So then, if I believe and trust what God has revealed about those important issues of life, then then why wouldn't I believe him about other things that he's told me to be true? And one of the other things that God has explained to us in the pages of the eternal scriptures is that there's there's a celestial being, a spirit being, and he has a name and his name is Satan, or the devil, or Lucifer. God God who tells me about himself and his son Jesus and the work of the cross and salvation and forgiveness and eternal life has also told me that there is this divine, there's this other being whose name is Satan. And Of all the things that God tells me about Satan, he tells me at least these two things. And the first one is, is that Satan and God are locked into a mortal combat. They are at war with each other, completely opposed to everything that each other wants. God wants one thing. Satan wants what's diametrically opposed to everything that God wants. And they're in a war. And you do know what they're fighting over, right? They're fighting over you. They're fighting over your soul. They're fighting over your faith, what you believe to be true. They're they're fighting over your eternal destiny. God wants one thing for you in eternity. Satan wants something completely different. They're fighting over you. The second thing that God tells me about Satan is that he's behind the author of all things evil. In all of its different shapes and sizes, in all of its many different expressions, if it's evil, Satan is the catalyst behind it. That's what God tells me about Satan, about the devil. And I know something like... But really, like, you believe in the guy wearing the red spandex with the pointy tail and the horns and, like, the pitchfork in his hands? Like, come on. No, I don't believe in that. But why would I? Because God doesn't describe Satan in any kinds of terms like that. That guy with the horns and the pitchfork, that's a caricature. It's a cartoon that's been manufactured by Hollywood and Madison Avenue, and it's one of the greatest PR moves of Satan of all time because it it creates this image in people's mind that he's not to be taken seriously. He's a joke, he's a cartoon. He's not for real, and it just makes guys like me look that much more stupid because nobody believes in that kind of fairy tale. But I don't believe in the guy in the red suit and the horns and the pitchfork. Because that's not how God speaks of him. Here's what I do believe in. Peter writes in his epistle to the New Testament church, be alert and be sober-minded. Like, take this seriously. Your enemy your enemy, the devil. You see, he's not your friend. He's not on your side. He's opposed to everything that you might be about as a Christ follower. Your enemy, the devil, here's an image. He prowls around like a roaring or fierce lion. And what's his intent? He's looking for someone to devour. Here's how God describes Satan. He's He's like, um, what's us like, take, take a picture. Uh, like, uh, he's like a lion, a fierce lion, and he prowls. How, how does a lion prowl? Very quietly. His intent is not to draw attention to himself. Very slowly, in a very calculated manner, he moves through the tall grass until he finds a prey in weakness and confusion. And then he pounces on them and he destroys their life. He devours them. That's what I believe to be true about Satan. He's not on our side. Or how about this? Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, for Satan, he masquerades. That means... He doesn't look like you might think he looks. His whole purpose is to deceive. He's built on deception. He masquerades, and look how he masquerades, as an angel of light. The word angel means messenger. In other words, Satan disguises himself as a spokesperson, a messenger, of things that are, what? Light. this, this, This hit me about two weeks ago, and I was like... Oh man, that changes the whole ball game. Satan masquerades himself as an angel or a messenger of light. So all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there's this wonderful contrast or this amazing contrast between light and darkness. And what light is often referring to is things that are good and healthy and wholesome. Things that nobody needs to be ashamed about. Things that you can do and not be, not be the least bit concerned about other people seeing you do it. But throughout the scriptures, darkness, darkness is a place of hiding. It's a place of guilt and shame. It's things that are improper and unwholesome and wrong. And so we hide in the darkness. Jesus said in John chapter 3, men love. Darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds, their nature is evil. And so Satan masquerades himself as a messenger of things that on the surface appear to be wholesome, appear to be right, appear to be good, appear to be proper. Are you ready? You ready? Appear to be just. But underneath them at the root, they are anything but... That's the Satan I believe in. And When we start acknowledging what God has told us to be true about this celestial realm of life that you can't see and you can't touch, but it is real and true and it is active all around you and there's one being on that celestial realm and his name is Satan and he's not our friend, he's our enemy. And he masquerades himself as an angel, a messenger of things that are good and right and proper when in fact they're not then that's why. The apostle Paul writes to the early church and he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you, you Christian, you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Do You see how the devil operates? He has a strategy. He has a plan He's very crafty in what he's up to. For our struggle, our struggle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, the stuff that we can see. It's not some guy in a red suit with a pitchfork. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark culture. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that are all around us at all times, that we live in ignorance of, dismissing it that's cartoonish. Therefore, Christian, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, you can continue to make a stand for what is good and right in the eyes of God and not in the eyes of your world, your culture. Does that make sense? So last week we touched on this. The culture is the experiences of everyday life that we share with the people around us. Home, work, school, strangers that we encounter, things that we watch on TV, the customs and traditions of our nation. And so here's what culture looks like. It's, it's like all of these things and the influences that we have, because I mean, the influence that they have on our life. And, and here's what... here's. Here's what I'm starting to observe. A lot of Christians don't want us talking about these things. Because, you ready? Because they want to say these things are political. And polit- politics doesn't have a place at church. But here's where I disagree with that. Fundamentally, these aren't about politics. This is about spiritual realms. Realms. Every one of these things at their root have something spiritual to be true about them. And all I'm trying to do is help you as a congregation and us as a church family to understand the powerful spiritual influence that these things have in our life that most of us live in ignorance about. We cannot be naive about these things. So, the Apostle Paul writes to the church don't be conformed to this culture. Don't get sucked in and squeezed into the mold that your culture wants you to live. Don't be conformed to this world, but you're going to have to be transformed. You're going to have to look at things completely differently from the renewal of your mind, your paradigm. So that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect while I watch this movie. Or I let my children on these apps. Or I go to these places and do these things. Discerning about the influence that they're having in our lives as Christians. Look at this passage of scripture. We, we looked at this last week, but this, I want you to get this. This is so critical right now. Paul writes to the church, I testify in the Lord that you must no longer live or walk as people who do their life without God. That's how that word's being used there. He says, these people without God in the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, all right? They don't even really see things as they are. They're darkened. They're alienated from all that God brings to life. And because of the ignorance that's in them, due to the hardness of their heart, they've become calloused. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, do you see that? It's right there. Okay, that was written in the first century. So watch this. Right now, in our culture, the enormous influencers, the key platforms that are having a profound impact on how we think and how we believe and what we value, news media, politics, big tech, influencers of all kinds, Twitter, TikTok, celebrities, social media, advertising, education, The primary movers and shakers of those very formative influences, look at this. This is how God sees those. These are people speaking in a futility of mind with a darkened understanding, alienated from what it is that God wants. They're ignorant because of the hardness of their heart being so far from God, they're calloused. They're hard against it, they're given to sensuality and they love, they celebrate, they applaud and approve. Every kind of impurity. These are the influences of the culture that we live in. This is what God is trying to make us aware of. And suddenly it changes television. Suddenly it changes movies. Suddenly it changes Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and Instagram. Suddenly it changes everything. If a Christian will step back and look, oh, that's what's going on here. So let me just give you a list of words that you need to be careful about. This can make me very unpopular. But here's some words that you need to step back and look at more carefully with more discernment. Because we're hearing this a lot these days. Words like progress. A nation is... Trying to make some progress. A culture's trying to make some progress. Society is trying to make some progress. Words like intelligence, education, and science. Love is taking on a whole new understanding. If you love me, you will accept and approve and applaud however I may choose to live my life. Equality, which isn't really about equality at all. Unity. Justice. Be very careful about how people who are darkened in their understanding are using these kinds of terms and what the agenda is. Because I'll tell you, it's completely inconsistent and compatible with what it is that Christ wants for you.
1: Black Lives Matter, and the book White Fragility. You need to be very discerning. One of the most powerful influences in our culture is advertising. Advertising
0: spends billions of dollars trying to understand your triggers to get you to do what they want you to do. They're not just selling you a product. They're selling you a set of values. They're selling you a way of life. In fact, many of the most popular brands these days, they're not just selling you a product, they're selling you an ideology. In fact, they're risking their product in the event that you don't necessarily agree with their ideology, so they won't sell you their product. Be very careful of this. So. When my boys were little, Charlotte and I—we have two sons. Um, they're not so little anymore. They're 26 as of today, and uh, 21. When they were little, um, my wife at the time she was a, a flute teacher. She's a flautist, and um, one night a week she would work late, and so I was doing the dad thing of you know, getting the boys supper, getting their homework done, getting them to you know baths and bed. And um, I'm not anywhere near. The kind of uh, chef that my wife is. My wife's an amazing cook. Uh, me, not so much. I have a couple of things I can make cold cereal. I can kill the sugar cereals, all right? Anyways, so um, I had to get really creative. And so the boys and I together, we created Orange Supper. Do you know what Orange Supper is? That's where everything that you eat is orange. So we had three entrees that we rotated through. It was um, toasted cheese sandwiches. That sausage with the cheese infused into it. So good. And spaghetti. If you do spaghetti right, it can actually look orange. (laughs) Then on on the um, toasted cheese sandwich and the sausage with cheese night, we would have macaroni and cheese. And then we'd have sliced carrots. And then we would drink... Orange Crush. It was beautiful, and we loved it. But the best part about Orange Dinner Night is that we would watch back-to-back episodes of America's Funniest Home Videos. We loved America's Funny Home Videos. I mean, like, we would laugh so hard you spit Orange Crush out of your nose, and we think that was funny, all right? Come on, come on. A dad at a birthday party for a kid with a pinata, crotch shots are never not funny. You just gotta give me that, right? So we would be watching America's Funniest Home Videos, and then the commercials would come on. Now, uh, what I'm about to tell you, do not be impressed about some sort of sophisticated parenting strategy, because it was nothing like that. I'm not that smart. It's just the way that my mind works. I don't like television. I find it kind of mind-numbing. And so I try to engage whenever I watch television. And so the commercials would come on. I'd be sitting there with my sons. And I'd say to my sons, boys, what are they trying to sell us? And they were young, and they were new to all of this. And they would always tell me the name of the product. They'd say, Dad, they're selling us soda or they're selling us beer or they're selling us cars or they're selling us a mortgage to house or they're selling us dishwashing soap. And then I'd say, well, what else are they selling us? And a little over time, they started to catch on. And I'd say, sons, what are they selling us? And they'd say, they're selling us this idea that if I drink this stuff, I'll have lots of friends around me who have a lot of good times together. What they're telling me is that if I drive that car, people will think I'm really cool. What they're telling me is if I live in that kind of house, then people will assume that I'm very successful and wealthy. What they're selling me is if I buy that particular dish soap, I'll never have to scrub a pan again, and my kitchen will be spotless all the time, my wife will be hot, and it'll sort of glisten. (laughs) Because I wanted them to be aware that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of
1: light. Does that make sense? So,
0: um, with the time that I have, I want to tell you about something that has created a sense of urgency in me, and it has to do with culture. Can I do that? I'm 59 years old. I know, I don't look a day over 16. I get that all the time. Uh, I'm 59 years old. I was born in 1962, and so in the 60 years that I've been alive, I've watched culture shift twice, and right now, I'm watching a third one begin to take place. Now, it has not taken place. It's moving at light speed toward a change. It does not have a name yet. It's not historically anchored, but I believe it's happening. I was born in 1962, so when I was born, the United States of America lived by what was called Judeo-Christian values. Now, long explanation for Judeo-Christian values, it means that largely society was sort of honored and operated around certain Jewish uh, Jewish scripture beliefs and certain Christian scripture beliefs. So this was largely about, society generally operated around the Ten Commandments, and the basic or fundamental teachings of Jesus, like love your neighbor, and be kind and compassionate, and help the weak, and don't judge, those sort of these basic, now please, that does not mean that everybody in America was a Christian. I'm just saying that for centuries, our nation was generally guided by these Judeo-Christian values. That's why at certain times in our history, not really that long ago, you could walk into a courthouse and there would be the Ten Commandments printed in the marble. That's why you can go to many of the universities, popular um, historic universities of the United States, particularly the Ivy League universities, and you'll find passages of scripture, if they've not been removed, printed in the marble on some of the main buildings. I mean, you can go to the University of Texas, go to the most predominant building on the campus, And at the base of it is a library, and you'll see these words, the words of Jesus. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you know that most of the Ivy League colleges started out as preparatory schools for priests and pastors? They have wandered far away from their original calling and charter. But this was typical in our nation at the time for many, many years. And then, toward the late 60s, early 70s, a shift happened. Some of you may recall the era of the hippie. And the hippie was introducing a new way of thinking, a new way of valuing, a new way of looking at the world, a new way of living. And it was very contrary to much of what had existed to that point. And so, one of the revolutions that took place through the influence of things like hippie culture, the subculture, is what was called the sexual revolution. And we started to think differently about things like, who you could have sex with, And it was a popular song of the 70s, love the one you're with, whereas before that sort of thing was frowned upon, or at least it was done very much in private, away from the public, and then in the late 60s, early 70s, that started making more public appearance and it received more public approval. But it wasn't just a sexual revolution, it was an authority revolution. It was how we looked at principals and teachers and policemen and judges and the law and the constitution. That all started to change. It was also a family revolution. We started to reconsider the idea of what was family, and it wasn't about nuclear anymore. It was about whoever you were with. And so this shift happened in culture. And so in the late 80s and early 90s, it came to full bloom in what was now historically anchored as postmodern culture meaning we move beyond modern, we're now post, we're after all of those old ways of thinking. There's new ways of thinking. There's new ways of valuing. There's new ways of going about living life. So it's interesting, one article I was reading about postmodernism, a professor who teaches a class in postmodern history, he would ask his uh, freshman students, what is postmodernism? Probably the best answer is one of his students says, postmodernism is the age or the era of air quotes the age and era of air quotes, where now things are not all that they've always been. So truth is my truth Not some sort of absolute truth for everybody. Your truth may be different than my truth. Right from wrong. What's right for me may be wrong for you, and what's wrong for you may be right for me. Because things are changing. The categories are different. Uh, Authority. I decide who's going to have a say in my life, not by position or title in the society. Um, Reason. I'll process information the way that I understand it, and I'll decide the course of my life based on reason, which gets replaced with feeling, what feels best for me, not necessarily what makes the most sense or is wisest. Another word that's changing is love. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. So we got this change going in postmodern culture. And at the essence of postmodern culture is, you ready? Post-God culture. It was during this shift in culture that God got pushed out, out of the school system, out of the legal system, out of society in general. We don't do the God thing anymore because largely it represented accountability. And I don't want to be accountable to anybody, certainly not in an internal perspective. So let's just do away with God. So we moved from Judeo-Christian culture to post-modern culture. But I think in the last five to 10 years, which is a relatively brief period of History. I'm seeing a new shift. And it's scary. Again, it's not anchored in history yet. It doesn't have a name. But here's the words for it. An anti-Christian culture. That much of what we believe and stand for, much of what our values as Christ followers are, are now not only dismissed as unintelligent, they're now being viewed as part of what's wrong with society. In their book, Good Faith, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons write this, instead of considering Christianity merely irrelevant, people are increasingly characterizing Christians as extremists whose beliefs are actually bad for society. Be on the lookout for the word... Domestic terrorist. You see, our Christian our culture is becoming more and more anti-Christian faster than I ever imagined. When I was in college, 1980 to 1984, there was a student on our campus, she was from Russia. Her dad was a Christian pastor in Russia, spent most of his life in prison. And she would tell us about Christians worshiping together in a place like Russia back in the 80s. And they would worship at night in the forest with the hopes of not being arrested and sent to prison. And I remember as a student thinking, well, that makes sense in places like Russia, in places like China, and places like the Middle East, but that'll never happen in America. We're far away from that, certainly not in my lifetime. It could happen in America, but it would be really hard to imagine that it ever would. And for the first time in my life, I'm beginning to think it could happen in my lifetime. Because it's moving so quickly. You see, many of the things that you and I as Christians hold dear to as as an ambassador of the gospel, much of what we promote, what much we stand for, is now being viewed as hate speech. It's hateful in a society that doesn't want to hear it. And what happens with hate speech over time, and history bears this out, that you don't just merely silence the speech, you eventually silence the speaker.
1: Let that settle in.
0: So we read passages like this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me. This is Jesus. It hated me first. If you belong to the world, it's going to love you as long as you follow the party line. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Because you stand for something different. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. You're not going to get through this life easier than I did if you're going to truly follow me. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Paul writes this to the early church, but mark this. Now, just listen to this passage and tell me that it doesn't describe the days in which we live. There will be terrible times in the last days and people, this is how society as a whole will be described. They'll be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, appearing on the surface to be about love and justice and truth, but having a form of godlessness, but denying its power, having nothing to do with, It's people like this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life, a life that has a thirst for the things of God, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. If we think for a moment that somehow we're going to change society to be our friend, I'm just telling us history stacked against us. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those things from whom you learned them and how from infancy you've known the scriptures,
1: God's eternal truth. There's more. But I don't have time. Can you understand
0: how serious the situation is?
1: It's kind of sobering, isn't it? But there's good news.
0: We'll talk about it next Sunday. As greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's stand together. Let's pray.
1: Our Father in heaven, will work in our hearts, open
0: our eyes and our ears, see the world like you do it, like you see it.
1: Don't let us be naive. And I pray, Father, you would
0: raise up a community of committed Christ followers
1: who will stand strong. be discerning of your will, your good and your perfect will. I pray and ask this in Christ's name.